We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> is he still in that shower? Hey! Save some hot water, will you? It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Um, you know, not much going on. It's sort of the dog days of summer, and uh, everybody is, uh, you know, politically are out sort of on the what they call the summer barbecue circuit and, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, there's not a lot going on, but um, this did come up today. The Prime Minister was supposed to provide an update on its response to the Emergency Act inquiry today, as of today. Uh, theoretically, by law, well, uh, no, he initially had a year to do that, but he said he was going to, he promised he was going to do it in six months and answer the 56 recommendations. Today would have been that anniversary, so, uh, you know, perhaps on vacation, who knows, uh, or, or perhaps it's on hold along with the public inquiry into Chinese Communist Party election interference. Not sure what is happening there, but, um, you know, we'll keep our eye on that. So we call this the summer barbecue circuit because politicians get out and about and meet their constituents and such. And, um, and, and we know what's going on with affordability, uh, interest rates rising, and of course the housing crisis, which, you know, as we talked to pundits uh, earlier on this week saying this has now become the hottest political issue. And I might add, one that is not going away. Oh, by the way, Andrea Horvath will be joining us, Mayor of Hamilton, to talk about the protocol at the tenant encampment. So as an extension of the housing uh, story, uh, and, and, and this is a massive issue right now because there's uh, finally the... Uh, the poop's hitting the fan, and people are realizing that we've got way more coming in than who we have houses for, and it's hard enough uh, with health care and housing the way it is, and something's got to give. And everybody is building houses like crazy, and, of course, that's playing catch-up. And, 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 and this is, I believe, going to be the number one issue for the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Because it's not going to be rectified that quickly. So if you can't afford a house now or a home now or your rent now, do you see it getting any better five years from now? I mean, hopefully it will. But think about this. A whole generation has lost, you know, young people have lost the ability to purchase a home. It's sad. It's very, very, very sad. And yet, instead of talking about the things that, are of concern to Canadians that are consuming Canadians. We have the foreign affairs minister saying, you know, uh, we're, we're going to come up with a game plan in case the U.S. election veers to the extreme right. What? I said, uh, the foreign affairs minister said, you know, we're coming up with a plan just in case the U.S. veers to the extreme right during its next election campaign. This is Donald Trump's in court. Is that what you're thinking, talking about at your kitchen table? And I guess, well, I'll leave it at that. And then the other uh, uh, interesting piece of information to come out is the environment minister, who's really a, a protester from the Greenpeace days, 
the environment minister is going to China to help them with the pollution. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This from a country who captured the two Michaels and who, by the way, opened the equivalent over the course of last year, two coal mines a week. Two coal mines a week. And the, and the environment minister from the country that spews less than 1.5% of the world's greenhouse gases is going to tell China what to do? What the heck is that? The summer barbecue tour should be called another roadside distraction. Because that's all this is. The headline in CTV, Canada mulling game plan if U.S. takes a far-right authoritarian ship, says Jolie. You're kidding me. Like, is there something new here that we're missing? And you know Trump's in court. (laughs) Uh, You know, and here's what our federal politicians are talking about. While the environment minister is preparing to go and spank China? To be some sort of liaison, some sort of bridge to a gap of coal? China is building six times more new coal plants than any other countries. A report from the national, from NPR, National Public Radio. That's the equivalent of the CBC, uh, in Canada. Uh, but you know, uh, that's another story. A new report from NPR finds that last year China permitted the equivalent of two new coal plants per week. And our environment minister is going over there and going to give him a piece of his mind and show him how to do things right? Better make sure he doesn't end up like one of the two Michaels. It is another roadside distraction tour starring the prime minister and your federal liberals coming to a town near you. Better than the Tragically Hips version. Another roadside distraction. Uh, you might remember uh, way back when we talked to the owners of the Green Machine food truck uh, and and what they had offered and why this business, this very niche business, took off. Now they're talking about a, Brit, a brick and mortar location and uh, obviously an expanding business. To talk more about all of this, Mike Sarah, uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah, oh my God, I'm sorry, Mike. Mike uh, Seratziotis is with us, uh, owner of the Green Machine food truck. Mike, thank you for the time. Sorry for butchering your name. I on my deepest apologies, Mike. So when we talked, when we talked the first time, this was something you were starting off, and and you'd found a very niche uh, uh, food truck, a niche uh, market here. Tell us about that and how this all got started. Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me back on. Uh, I appreciate you you uh, reaching out to, to have us back on the radio. We always have a, a good experience with you guys. And um, yeah, we uh, I wanted to start up the truck. Uh, well, it's hard to believe it's been seven years ago now. Hmm. Um, but yeah, just from uh, just going to local festivals, um, you know, around Hamilton, around the area, and just finding that uh, there weren't really any healthy food trucks around. Um, you know, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with with French fries or uh, or funnel cake. Uh, I sure. definitely get get my fill at the festivals too. But um, it just seemed like it was a little. Uh, niche business that you know with a with a growing market that that wasn't really uh, being paid attention to and 
I find that, you know, year over year, um, people are focusing more and more about, you know, eating healthy and, uh, and uh, seeking out those, those options, um, whether it's at restaurants or when they're out and about. But uh, yeah, it just seemed like it would be a fun, uh, a fun idea and uh, to start up a, a healthy food truck and, uh, and see, see where, it, where it went, you know. Surprised it was so successful. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it was definitely um, a work in progress. Uh, I I didn't really know um, how to run a food truck, um, but you know, kind of learning along the way, uh, figuring out where the trucks fit in, um, because it was kind of a different concept. Um, but we, you know, we found uh, you know a nice partnership with things like uh, sports tournaments in the summer, um, yeah. certain festivals. Uh, especially local festivals, you know, Hamiltonians are always really good with coming out and supporting uh, local businesses, which I always appreciate. And um, yeah, we, we, we managed to figure it out year over year and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's turned into something and, and it's, it's nice to, to be able to have something that I can, I can call my own and, and, uh, and have fun uh, running the business and, and doing something that I love doing. All right, that's one thing, Mike. And then moving to a brick-and-mortar location as well is is another kettle of fish. So why that decision advantages for you? So one of the challenges with the, running the food truck was having uh, a home base, um, finding places to not only park the truck, um, and, and not, uh, not only that, but having kitchens to, to work out of as well uh, was challenging. Um, you know, I would say in the last six years, we had to move the location of the truck uh, four or five times. Um, so that was definitely a challenging aspect because we would, you know, work. Uh, sometimes we would have kitchens that we would share with other trucks. And for one reason or another, we would need to uh, to, to move out of that spot and find another one. Um, so so having a home base for the truck itself was, was a big um, need for, for the business to continue to operate as it is or to, to grow. And uh, we were fortunate enough to, to find a spot um, that also had um, not only the kitchen space and the space to park the truck, but also has a, a, a ready-made takeout uh, section of the, of the uh, property. Mm-hmm. Um, so it allow us to kind of do both things at once where we can focus on making sure the truck is operating as it should, and also, uh, you know, now kind of expand a little bit. Where now we can have our um, our products available uh, year round uh, to the public. Where you know, if they can't find the truck, or if we're kind of out of town for a little bit, uh, then people can stop by the the shop, and uh, everything that they know from the truck will be available there too. So tell us about the new digs. Uh, so the the location um, is. Uh, located on Concession Street on the Hamilton Mountain. Um, it's just west of uh, Upper Sherman, and uh, it's across from the Juravinsky Hospital. And, um, yeah, it's a nice little, uh, it's a, a, a small little spot. Uh, people that live in the area would be familiar with um, uh, it, uh, with the spot already. It's the, the Johnny Blonde uh, right. used to have a takeout spot out of there. And uh, John is uh, you know he's he's doing fantastic with uh with catering and with weddings and that like uh so he um he was kind enough to to offer the the spot to me 
um, while he focuses on growing his business in that regard. And um, we're really grateful for that. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a nice little spot that, um, you know, like I said, it, it it helps us take care of the truck and make sure the truck is is operating. But it's going to be a lot of fun to be able to to have a little takeout spot for the public and uh, and do our smoothies and our and our soups. You know, soup season is fast approaching. Yeah. Um, so it'll be nice to kind of have a spot where people can come and get fresh soup uh, in the fall and winter and. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun, and, and I'm looking forward to having a little spot where where people can drop in um, year-round. Mike Saratziotis is with us, owner of the Green Machine Food Truck. Uh, now look for a location, Concession Street West of Upper Sherman, right across from the Jurabinsky Hospital. Sounds like you've got some expanding to do, Mike, and future plans. Keep us abreast. Good luck. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it. Writing in the National Post, Rahim Mohammed argues that the federal liberals have prioritized climate virtue signaling uh, over keeping the lights on, despite global events reminding us the West cannot take cheap, reliable, and plentiful electricity for granted. Uh, we're all trying to do our best to curb uh, global emissions and save the planet, but is a country who contributes less than 1.5% of the global uh, world's global greenhouse gas is doing what it can, especially when other countries are banging on our door for much cleaner Canadian liquid natural gas, and the Prime Minister can't seem to find a business case for it. Let's bring in Dr. Rahim Mohammed, political commentator and writer specializing in comparative politics, natural resources, and political economy, former professor with Center College, Wake Forest University, and here now. Doctor, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, it's great to be here, Scott. It's my Hammertown debut, first time on radio in the Hammertown. Great to have you here, uh, and and I'm sure you know the discussion that we have uh, across this country. It, it's bizarre that this debate always seems to end up in the extremes, that we can't sit down and have uh, an intelligent conversation on how we can move forward as opposed to just shut off the taps and starve everybody. Uh, we've got countries asking us for liquid natural gas. We've got people now questioning carbon tax and questioning the strategy that our government has. What are are we missing here? Are, are, do we have the right strategy? No, and, and I would say um, part of it is Canada to this point has been insulated from a lot of what's happening in the world. Um, so Canadian ratepayers are not, you know, seeing the astronomical electricity bills that we've seen in places like the United Kingdom, Germany, Italy. Um, you know, thank goodness, you know, nothing like what happened in Texas in you know the winter of 2021. You know, what's happened in Northern Ontario or Saskatchewan. Um, so I think to an extent, um, you know, we've been a victim of our own good fortune. Um, and that's made us blind um, to, I think, what's been a dramatic change in the global energy environment, particularly um, since Russia's invasion, full-scale full invasion of Ukraine uh, about a year and a half ago. I remember having a conversation uh, with Green Party leader Elizabeth May and, 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 and asking her, do we have the right strategy? Because we've been, we've been banging this drum for 20, 30 years now, and, and it, it always seems to shut off the tap, shut off the tap, shut off the tap. Uh, and, and I said to her, does it not make more sense for everyone to focus on, for example, getting the world off of coal, which is the biggest polluter? And she said it was too late for that. However, I I remember her saying the same thing 20 years ago. So, uh, again, are we are we focused on a single goal as opposed to just flailing away here? 
Well, I mean, forget the world. Let's get Canada off of coal. Um, you know, there are mm-hmm. a number of provinces within Canada, you know, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, you look up north at the territories um, that are still dependent on GHG intensive fossil fuels like, like coal, like petroleum. Um, so of, you know, that group, uh, natural gas is by far and away the cleanest burning. Um, there is a lot of potential, I think, with carbon capture utilization and storage technology um, to reduce emissions even further. Um, so let's focus on, you know, cleaning up our own backyard, uh, you know, before trying to solve the world's problems. Uh, what should the federal government be doing? Um, what strategy should they be taking? Give us a few points. So I absolutely understand. I think we're all looking toward net zero. I think net zero yeah. in 12 years time. Um, you know, that is right around the corner. I think it's unrealistic. I think we should take a broader approach to net zero. Um, we should be a leader in investing in carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology. Um, and we should take advantage of our bounty of natural gas. We're a top 10 natural gas producer. Um, we've got enough, enough proven reserves of natural gas to keep the lights on for the next 200 years. Um, we should at least keep that as part of the mix. Um, so I'm in favor of an all of the above. Um, energy mix. I think sustainable, um, you know, renewables, um, wind, solar, nuclear need to be part of the mix, but as does natural gas and as do some of the cleaner burning fossil fuels. Raheem, every expert I have talked to has said basically the same thing. We're going to use, you know, to use an old phrase from the pandemic, every tool in the toolbox in order to do this. We can't, we can't put all of our eggs into one basket. Is this opinion growing? It seems the Canadians are now starting to realize this. So um, this is incredibly complex subject matter, uh, but what I will say is uh, looking at the past two years and some of the events relating to electric grid reliability. Um, so you look at what happened in Texas in um, you know, February of 2021. Um, you know, you think about places in Saskatchewan, um, you know, not having power for days in the, the dead of winter, um, you know, in negative 40, negative 50 temperatures. I mean, that could be, you know, you could look at a number of fatalities. I mean, that could, you know, we could have dozens of fatalities from that. So I think Canadians are finally catching on, on, you know, we're in, I I think, a new phase of energy politics. And I think we need to prioritize keeping the lights on um, before anything else. And I think Canadians are finally um, beginning to catch on to that. Can't let you go without asking you your thoughts. Uh, there, there's uh, news coming out that our in- energy minister is going to head over to China, uh, mm. some sort of liaison, Beijing, and, and, and I guess yeah. try to come up with better policy and such. What are your thoughts? So, Mr. Gilbo, our environment minister, um, I just caught, uh, caught the tail end of that. Um, you know, I am not uh, necessarily averse to sharing ideas. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, um, China is quite advanced. Um, when it comes to energy, when it comes to infrastructure. Um, that being said, there are a lot of troubling links between um, the Liberal Party and, and sort of the communist government in China um, that I don't think the Johnson inquiry um, really elucidated. I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions um, about the relationship between our liberal government and um, the CCP. So I have to question the, the optics uh, of this, uh, this visit. Uh, especially when China is opening the equivalent of two coal mines per week, says na- a National Public Radio. Um, how can, what is Canada going to teach them? Um, so again, I think there's, um, there's, um, there's a potential for um, exchange between the two countries. Um, so China, um, if you look at a public health perspective, um, coal production 
is still a major problem um, within the Chinese public. You see a lot mm. of respiratory illness. You see a number of fatalities relating to coal production. Um, so again, China is one of several would-be customers that's banging on the door for Canadian MLG, uh, Canadian LNG that doesn't have uh, the same sort of public health consequences of the coal. Um, so potentially that's an area where you can have cooperation not only between Canada, um, but other places along the Pacific Rim, Japan, South Korea, um, who are dealing with the same public health issues uh, relating to coal production. Uh, great idea, but uh, are you suggesting that Canada could be selling uh, liquid natural gas to China when there's no business case for it here? Um, I think we need to look beyond a business case and toward a humanitarian case. You look at a country mm, like mm. South Korea um, that across most dimensions, um, it's you know as advanced or more advanced um, than Canada. You look at its higher education, you, know, you look at technology in South Korea, you still have thousands of people in South Korea every year, many of whom are children, who are dying from respiratory illnesses that are related to the inhalation of coal dust. Um, so I'm less concerned than a narrow, in a narrow business case. And I think we should look at humanitarian and geopolitical dimensions um, surrounding the need, not just in Canada, but globally, um, for Canada to do more in the LNG sector. Wow, that's very well said. Uh, Dr. Rahim Mohammed with us, political commentator, writer specializing in corporate uh, comparative poli uh, politics, rather natural resources and political economy, former professor with Center College, Wake Forest University. Fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me. You do the same. All right. Uh, uh, you need a program pretty much to keep up with what's going on south of the border when it comes to uh, the trials and tribulations of Donald Trump. Uh, more trials are on the way. He really is just a perpetual court case when you think about it. To give us an update and help us follow the program, Reggie Cicchini with his Washington correspondent for Global News. He is here now. Reggie, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So give us a bit of an update here. Uh, catch us up, Reggie. Where is the former president right now? Well, the former president right now is at his home, uh, and we are learning via his uh, legal team that he is preparing to surrender himself in Georgia sometime by next Wednesday. That follows the indictment against him and 18 other people that came down by the district attorney in Fulton County on Tuesday, once he does surrender himself at the jail and goes through the entire process, uh, he then has to deal with an arraignment uh, at the Fulton County Courthouse sometime in the week after Labor Day. And this is simply going to add to what is already an incredibly congested combination of a campaign calendar and a legal calendar. How does this collide with his campaign uh, and the timing of all of this? Well, I mean, the, the the district attorney in Georgia is looking for a trial to start uh, sometime in and around uh, the beginning of March. It would be within about eight days of the Georgia primary, and that would fall kind of within a couple of weeks of the Super Tuesday primary events in March. That obviously is going to potentially conflict here with what the special counsel is doing with the Trump uh, uh 2020 election lawsuit that he wants the judge to put forward on January 2nd. Uh, and then we also remember that the Florida court case is expected in May, and he has some civil trials that are starting up in October. All of that is going to chew into incredibly crucial time that the former president needs on the campaign trail. And that includes, Scott, the GOP debate, which he's probably not going to go to, but 
it is next week in and around the time that he's going to surrender. So this is a delicate dance for him and his legal and his campaign team to be walking. What kind of delicate dance is it for the rest of the Republican Party? Well, good question. I mean, look, some people are trying to side with the former president, Republican uh, candidate Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina. He's saying that, look, this is no good. This, this, this is kind of a political move against the former president aligning himself with Donald Trump. There were some leaked memos that came out earlier today from Ron DeSantis's campaign saying that he intends to also side himself with the former president, but at the same time pitching himself as the person who can carry the Trumpism flag forward maybe keeping Donald Trump out of the picture. But for the most part here, Republicans are lining up with Trump because they understand that going against him can anger that base. And that base is going to be key to helping these people move forward. How many Republicans are basically uh, looking like they're on side with the former president or and, and basically waiting for the legal woes to to fully bury him and then go up? Oh, not my problem anymore. The vast majority of them. I mean, look, there are people who are speaking out against Donald Trump and the situation he's in, namely Chris Christie, uh, one of the lower ranking members of uh, the candidate race here. Even former Vice President Mike Pence is coming out and distancing himself from his time with the Trump administration and also criticizing the former president for some of the messes that he's kind of found himself in. But the vast majority of not only Republicans in this race, but Republicans in Congress and just general Republican voters are still finding themselves locked to the former president. He still maintains an incredibly tight grip on this party, despite the fact that he has now uh, found himself indicted for a fourth time, five if you include the superseding indictment in Florida. And this is despite polling that shows a growing number to a plus side of the majority of Americans argue that Donald Trump's actions deserve the consequences that he's been facing. Uh, there's chatter in Georgia that this could all be in front of a camera. Oh, how does that add something to this? It's very possible here. Uh, and that's if it stays at the state level. Cameras are allowed in the courtroom uh, if there is a, a trial in Fulton County. Trump's team, some of the other defendants, they're going to try to get this moved into federal court where cameras are not allowed and they would be able to pull from a much more broad set jury. Uh, we don't know if that's going to happen or not. If it stays at the state level, that means we will see uh, the arraignment. We'll see parts of the court case. Remember, too, if it stays at the state level where it is, it's impossible to pardon somebody from the presidential level or even from the governor's level. It would be at a pardon board. So there are kind of serious legal problems here that get in the way of political problems for anybody who's found themselves convicted. The Donald Trump show continues. Reggie Giacchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. As always, Reggie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we certainly know the situation about uh, uh, homes and affordability and homelessness, the unhoused and tent encampments and such, which going on in every, not only large city, major city, but also in small towns across the land as well. Uh, the city of Hamilton's protocol for addressing encampments and our unhoused citizens will move on to a ratification vote at City Council on Friday. To talk more about all of this, Andrea Horbath is with us, Mayor, City of Hamilton, in here now. Andrea, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, thanks, God, and hope you are as well, and I appreciate the opportunity. 
Uh, I know this is an incredibly difficult issue, and I'm sure you're getting it from all angles here, Andrea. Tell us where we are now, how we are moving forward. Give us a bit of an update. Well, uh, I certainly agree, and I know that uh, the councillors agree as well. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue for everybody. Uh, Folks who are unhoused, advocates, neighbourhoods, the council. But I do think that the protocol gives us a path forward. I'm proud of the work that was done uh, to uh, to get us there. And what we're trying to do is balance the needs of uh, vulnerable populations with the very real concerns of uh, of residents and local neighbourhoods. And so we all know that encampments are not the answer. Uh, the, pro- uh, the protocols are not going to solve homelessness, but, uh, you know, we need to bring some, um, you know, some uh, bearing on the, the way that the encampments operate and make sure that uh, we have clarity and support uh, around how do, we, uh, how do we respond and how do we try to transition people out of the crisis. All right. So give it, and that last part is very crucial. How, give us a bit of an example. Uh, what are the rules of engagement? What are the guidelines around these? Uh, well, uh, first and foremost, I think we would all agree that the biggest solution to homelessness is more affordable housing. And I think we're, we're all kind of uh, in agreement that that, uh, that needs to happen. I, I guess, um, I, I mean, there's a long, there's a long list. I, I'm not sure exactly what uh, piece you want me to address, but... Uh, but what, will, what, will it, what will it look like when we walk into the parks? I mean, you know, that's really okay. what people okay. are concerned about. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that's really important uh, is that the protocols do not create sanctioned encampment sites. That was something that there was confusion about. It does not create sanctioned sites. Uh, what it does do, though, is create a, a system for Hamilton to respond to the reality of the encampments uh, and to accelerate that transition that we talked about. So what the protocols do is they create really clear parameters for encampments, limiting uh, the maximum number of tents in, in any location to five. Uh, and specifying where tents will not be allowed. Uh, we, we, we talk about, uh, the protocols talk about uh, the needs of unhoused people, uh, absolutely, and, and we commit to things like increased supports, access to washrooms and showers, uh, a systems guide, uh, a, a systems guide to, or rather a system to guide people uh, into permanent housing. We do, with the protocols, provide clear contacts for members of the public to share their concerns, their complaints, they're, um, you know, to report on things that are of a concern to them and a response within 72 hours. Um, it increases the amount of resources we're, we're providing for street and park cleanup uh, and, and public space cleanup because we know that public spaces belong to everybody. Uh, and we have to make sure people feel uh, safe and comfortable using public spaces. Uh, and so it's, it's really, it's taking what is now a pretty chaotic situation and trying to to bring some um, um, some order, really. Uh, what about utilities, washrooms, water, electricity? How does that get to these sites? How do they access them? Well, you know, this is a, this is not something that's going to uh, to happen because we do not have sanctioned sites. So we are not creating you know big, huge sanctioned sites that have uh, electricity, for example. Uh, right. What we are going to be doing is providing through the support systems that uh, that we have, uh, uh, water for folks. What we are going to do is identify a couple of locations where folks can, can have a shower, uh, where, where folks can uh, can uh, use the washroom. Uh, and uh, and that's really, really important. So, so again, it's, this is not like, a, like saying, here's this big place, everybody can camp here, and we're going to provide all kinds of, uh, right. you know, electricity and those kinds of things. However, 
Um, we are going to provide, you know, support, uh, opportunities for people to connect to ser- services, but also to try to get out of uh, the um, uh, the situation they're in, whether that's through a shelter system, whether that's through transitional housing and supportive housing. So the other piece that's important that we don't want to ever lose sight of is that we are still working hard uh, for the housing solutions. So whether that's with the federal government, the provincial government, community-based partners, uh, we are trying to address what uh, what we know is the uh, is the is the the big answer, which is. Uh, which is housing and supportive housing. We've talked about this before, Andrea. What happens in 90 days when the snow starts flying? Well, you know, that's a, that's, that's a question I think that we have every single winter. Uh, what we're also looking at, what the staff have put forward, is a plan to kind of uh, work on uh, how do we increase our shelter capacity. Uh, that was supposed to come with this report the other day, uh, but it was moved to um, our first meeting in September uh, just because it needs to have some attention. And, and it, it, we had a very, very long meeting. It didn't end until 10, 10 o'clock at night on Monday. So we, we moved that uh, that piece to a future meeting very soon. So it's September, far before the uh, snow flies. But, you know, the, the, the reality is the city can't do it alone. And we've been saying this for a long time. We mm. cannot address the homelessness situation, the unhoused folks in our community's needs on our own. We need uh, well, not only do we need more bricks and mortar, uh, but we uh, but we need uh, more support for the services or rather yeah certainly financial support for the services so that we can have the capacity uh, to give people uh, uh, you know the, the kinds of things that they need to successfully become housed so it's a whole bunch of stuff the protocol is one tool uh, to try to, to help us uh, address the problem Andrea I just we got very limited time left but I, I have to ask you this question it's from a listener the Jamesville project uh, in danger because yes. of the tiny home situation and debate can you comment on that uh, well, I, I don't. Uh, I don't actually agree that there's any uh, danger to the project at all. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm going to be reaching out to the folks that uh, sent that letter in. Uh, basically, there's a huge tent encampment right now, right across the street from the uh, from the um, the building site. And so, what we what we need to do is, as I said, we need to find ways to uh, uh, to get people more permanent shelter. Uh, and this is a, a pilot. It's a two year pilot project. And um, and I, I doubt very much that um, even though I want it very, very badly, uh, I don't know that because it's tied up in legal issues right now, I don't know that it, within that two years that that entire site will be built. Uh, but we are pushing to get that site built. In the meantime, tents are not the solution, as we know. This is a pilot project that can help us figure out whether HAT uh, is a model that we can expand upon. But we won't know that until we try it. So it is a temporary uh, a temporary site. and. Um, uh, and we're hoping that it brings um, opportunity for people who are on our list of uh, uh, folks. Uh, we, we call it the by name list. Uh, so couples and other people that are ready to transition into more permanent housing uh, can start that journey at that HATS project, which uh, which I hope is very successful. It's going to have intense services, security, fencing. Um, it, it's uh, 24 hours uh, going to be monitored. So uh, it's, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot more, I guess, uh, uh, structured uh, than um, than what's there mm-hmm. now. That's for certain. Andrea Horbath with us, Mayor, City of Hamilton. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time. Much appreciated. Very difficult time, and thank you for sharing yours with our with us. Much appreciated. My my pleasure, Scott. As always, thank you. A quick break here. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. So, have you seen the new Pierre Polyevra ads? Yes! Very warm and cuddly. Uh, I'm not sure if I should play a portion without charging them, really. Um, but, but is Pierre Polyevra trying to beat Trudeau at his own public relations game with a new set of ads that are running now? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Can't hear, can't wait to hear what she has to say. Alyssa is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. That was a leading comment. <laughs> In what way? What do you mean? What do you mean? I so what do you? Heard, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> you know me too well. Oh, and that's why we, and that's why we enjoy having you on all the time. So uh, I'm sure you've seen the ads. I was going to play a portion of them, but man, if we're not getting paid for it, why would I do that? And then people would really accuse me of shilling for PP. But what what are your thoughts on these ads? Well, you know what? I think that this is very interesting in that the Conservatives have always been a little bit late to the game and having Canadians get to know their leader. You know, Andrew Scheer, Aaron O'Toole. I mean, he also had to be involved in a very quick election. So nobody had the chance to really get to know either of these politicians. Now there's some lead up time, right? So first of all, number one, this is happening during the summer. Ad rates are always cheaper in the summer, Scott. So that's why there's a lot of heavy rotation on this. Number two, Polly Ever has gone under a bit of a makeover. He's had a glow up, as my daughter would say. So <laughs> he got rid of the glasses. His hair has, he's got the flow. It's called the flow, Scott. He's got a flow going on. He looks mm. a little bit very all Canadian and apple pie with pancakes and maple syrup, if I might say. And the narrators. Of this, of these commercials, Scott, or at least the ones that I keep seeing, is his wife. Yeah, so there's two ver- there's two versions of this: one that he narrates and one that his wife narrates, uh, which is and basically they're they're that, they're in. Like, yeah. They're all entitled Who is Pierre Polyevra? And they sort of give they paint him like um, you know just the average guy for those who that haven't seen them. So on the flip side, you know, one politician has a wife and the other one does not any longer, or is estranged or is separated from one. So that's a very, very deliberate strategic move. It's just not say, well, let's just have somebody who knows him best. Of course, it's his wife, so let's have her do it. That doesn't always isn't always the case, although it's very low-hanging fruit. In this case, I would say that it's very deliberate because if you take it one step further, you know, Sophie's not going to do a commercial about uh, Justin and say, well, even though we're separated, he's a really good guy. I, I totally I totally see your point, Alyssa, but I have a feeling these were in the can long before that uh, because it does check off all the boxes whether the PM has separated or not. True, but I will say that it plays really well whether it was strategically oh, yeah. or not. So I think that what this is yeah. trying to do, first of all, there's a little there's quite a bit of lead up, right? You know, we're not necessarily supposed to have an election until when, Scott, twenty twenty five. But mm-hmm. you know what? You, you you never know. It might come earlier. So let's not get caught flat-footed. You know, the conservative think think tank is thinking, let's get out there. Let's give, you know, Pierre some runway. And let's keep doing these types of get-to-know-you commercials or whatever they feel that they need to do so so that Canadians have a sense of who they want them to believe Pierre Polly ever is. So rather than being flat footed, they're actually being very, very proactive in this regard. Interesting point. I never thought of that. What about the image of average guy versus the elite? Because they really are painting him, you know, uh, he's the average guy. 
I think that they're trying to do that. So if I had to, you know, let's say compare this to U.S. politics, um, I would have to say that it's definitely more of, I would say it's very much of a mega platform still, make America or make Canada great again. But it's less of a Trump and probably more of uh, a Ron DeSantis, even though he's second in the polls, sort of a more palatable type of uh, candidate that Canadians could uh, potentially embrace. You know, I think that what they do hope is that, you know, a lot of us just read headlines, Scott. You know that. You see the headline and you don't necessarily read the rest of the story. And I think that many political parties really hope that that is the case. You often ask me, so what do you think Canadians will think? And sometimes I think, well, they're going to think to this. Or sometimes I say, they're not going to think much and this is going to blow over by next news cycle. So what they're trying to do is get out this get-to-know-you narrative, keep it going, and then also double down, Scott, on the points that they feel resonate with Canadians. Because, you know, every time a political party puts out an ad, there's always some sort of, um, you know, uh, they get their polling companies out and they start asking Canadians, what do they remember? What do they think? And what resonates with them? They'll take those points, Scott, and then they'll come out with sort of a round two of what they want uh, Canadians to know even more about Pierre Polyever. So that is definitely going to come down the pike. I didn't see the comparison with the United States as much. Um, what I saw was a comparison to the Prime Minister. And by that I mean, I think that Pierre Polyevre has finally realized what he needs to do, and now he is beating Justin Trudeau at his old traditional game. And and that is very true. And right now the Liberals are sort of taking, you know, they're, they're kind of taking the summer off. And I don't know if they want to use all their capital right now in sort of retooling or reintroducing uh, Justin Trudeau. I don't know. I mean, this is really a conundrum for the PMOs. Uh, it, it really is. So what are the narratives that they are going to come to put that not just juxtapose, but in, in some ways usurp what's going on right now? And I think that it's going to be very interesting on how they either will they position it as a party, will they position it as a party around the man. So there's a number of ways that you can take this. And I think it's going to be very interesting moving along to see what tact the Liberals do end up taking. I've called the uh, Liberal Barbecue Tour the uh, another roadside distraction, sort of a spin on the hip thing, you know, right? another roadside distraction as opposed it. to another roadside it. attraction. huh? <laughs> so anyway, Angelina Jolie comes out, uh, 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 comes out today and, and says there's a news article. We're going to watch and see what's happening in the U.S. and have a plan in case it veers too much to the right in the next federal election. I'm thinking, what the hell does that have to do with anything? And then the environment uh, minister now going to head to China. No, not for a, a public inquiry, but to give them a lesson or two on the environment as they build two new coal plants a year, like or a week, sorry. So where, what is this game of distraction? You know, it is, it, it, it's really interesting. And I think that what every political party tries to do, optic-wise, Scott, is find a way to turn the channel. And many a war room and many a meeting is about, all right, we're not doing so well here. What can we do just as a distraction? And some, in, in this case, that's one thing. What Angelina Jolie thinks, I, I don't think many people care about. I mean, she is a little bit of a bellwether. I think she's more, um, people listen to her more around women's health. I don't think they care Hang about Hang on, we're making, we're making an incredible mistake here. It, it's Melanie Jolie, not Angelina that's Jolie. Like, but oh, I said Jolie the same thing. Jolie. No, I did the same thing. I, I, I know. So, I'm you sorry. know what? So going to 
China. I wasn't sure where you were going with that, but I'm just trying to pick up all the points. But, you know, going to China to teach them about environmental, I mean, obviously, that is a distraction, Scott. It really yeah. is. Yeah. And, you know, could, honestly, couldn't you think of something else and go somewhere else that wasn't going to be such a lightning rod? Like, why are you going there to talk about coal plants and the environment? And why aren't you there to delve more into, you know, what we really want you to talk about? So I, I think that when it comes to changing the channel, You've got to be a little bit smarter than that. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, uh, the latest in politics. Always fun, Alyssa. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. A new report says that all levels of government need to collaborate to get more housing built in Ontario. But that should work. Uh, that work should also include the post-secondary education sector. The report by the Smart Prosperity Institute, a University of Ottawa think tank, says higher education sector plays a vital role in the housing system as, enro- as enrollment decisions can substantially increase a community's need for housing. To talk more about all of this, Mike Moffat with us, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute, Assistant Professor in Business Economics and Public Policy, Ivy Business School, Western University, and here now. Mike, thank you for the time hope you're well oh thank you for having me talk about the education sector what role does it play here well it uh, helps on both the uh, supply and demand side so uh, the higher education sector you know trains uh, workers and that's everyone from the skilled tradespeople, uh, electricians plumbers roofers sheet metal workers and so on that we need to build homes but it's also a big portion of housing demand uh, these days that we've seen large increases over the last seven years in international student enrollments, uh, particularly at the college level, more so than the university level. Over the last seven years, uh, college enrollment is uh, international student enrollment at our colleges is up 240%. And we've built almost no student residences. That's Mm -hmm. an extra 80,000 international students in Southern Ontario, all who need somewhere to live, and that's creating uh, tensions in a rental market. Uh, it's uh, bidding up rents. And on the ownership side, we're seeing a lot of uh, single family homes getting converted into student rentals, uh, making it hard for first time home buyers to find a place to live. Uh, we often talk and in, in hear about how the increasing immigration levels are putting stress, but we often don't include this sector in that discussion, do we? No, we, we don't. And that's it's an important distinction to make that. Uh, our immigration system uh, has a target of a, just under 500,000 people a year, but our population is growing by over a million. And the difference is a variety of what's called non-permanent resident programs. So that's not just international students, but that's uh, groups like temporary foreign workers and so on. They were not included in our immigration targets. And in fact, there's no target whatsoever and that makes it difficult for municipalities to plan. If they don't know five years from now how many international students will be coming, how many temporary foreign workers will live in the community, it's hard for them to figure out what to do on housing, let alone transit and uh, building enough schools and all of the things that we need to, to make a community work. You bring up a valid point. Uh, I was talking to a pundit earlier this week and said that housing is now the the biggest, the hottest political issue. Um, uh, I asked, will this not be the hottest political issue, the, the biggest concern, as well as affordability and such, moving forward for the next few years, five to ten years anyway, as we try to catch up? 
I, I believe it will be. So, you know, barring any uh, large international events, I think housing and the broader issue of affordability is going to be massive. We're uh, we have so many young people who cannot find a home, uh, you know, want to raise a family but aren't able to. And we have a lot of seniors in homes, uh, in, in their in their houses, who would love to be able to downsize and find something more appropriate, but there's just nothing on the market. So overall, it's affecting a wide swath of the population, and those those people are going to vote. And I, I think they are looking for candidates at all uh, orders of government to to help solve this crisis. We certainly all know about the green belt uh, debate and uh, and and those that are opposed to it uh, uh, to oppose to the nibbling of the green belt say there's still 20 to 40 uh, years worth of houses to be built I've had many experts tell me the exact same thing how about however uh, has this debate brought to the attention that well why isn't why is there a shortage then why have we not built something on this 20 to 40 years worth of supply yeah absolutely and and we look at that uh, in the report and 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 look at solutions so and there's a number of things like that's going on that uh, the the approvals process is, is a challenge at all three levels of government uh, for instance, there are thousands of apartment buildings uh, with applications at the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation for uh, construction insurance um, that haven't been approved so that's one bottleneck. There are financial bottlenecks as well. So particularly with higher interest rates, there are a bunch of projects that just don't uh, make economic sense right now, but they could if we did things like uh, remove the GST and HST on purpose-built rental construction. If we introduced the type of tax credits we had back in the 60s and 70s to build apartment buildings, we could uh, make more of these projects viable. So there's a lot of different things happening, a lot of different bottlenecks to, to construction. But the, the solutions are out there, and, and it will take a wartime-like effort to get the uh, the levels of construction we need, but I believe it's possible. Uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, I've, I've said this many times, the last provincial campaign, all four parties were saying we need to build uh, homes north of a million, a million five and such. Um, is this going to, is this need going to get more attention? It's getting more attention now. We're seeing all levels of politicians now admitting that this is a, a problem. But are we really going to see many who have, have, have shuttered these ideas now turn around and say, well, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this because it's, 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 it's a self-inflicted wound here. It really is. And I feel like that the conversation has changed in the in the past few weeks that uh, politicians at, at all three orders of government are taking this more seriously. And we could throw around a lot of numbers, but I, I think it's important to put them in context that we do need to build at least 1.5 million homes in Ontario uh, over the next decade. Uh, we haven't even built 750,000 in any 10 year period since 1973 to 1982, mm. which basically exactly mm. coincides with the television run of the show MASH. So that's the, <laughs> the uh, challenge in front of us, that we need to do something that we haven't done in 40 to 50 years and then double it in the same time span. So this is going to take some massive, massive effort uh, on, on behalf of everyone, not just governments, but industry as well. Mike Moffitt, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation, the Smart Prosperity Institute, Assistant Professor in the Business Economics and, Pu and Public Policy Group, Ivy Business School, Western University. Mike, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, whenever we talk about utopian countries where the life is the best, uh, other than our country, Canada, you want, we often hear Scandinavian countries, Sweden. Perfect example. Despite common misconceptions, middle-class workers in Sweden, a country often celebrated by social Democrats in Canada, pay high taxes for Sweden's large government, finds a new book published today by the Fraser Institute, an independent, nonpartisan Canadian public uh, policy think tank, to talk more about all of this. And what's the big deal with Sweden? Matthew Mitchell with a senior fellow, Center for Economic Freedom, Fraser Institute here now. Matthew, thank you for your time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks so much for having me. We often hear the Scandinavian countries, Sweden in particular, that, you know, they're doing it right. Uh, why do we always compare ourselves to Sweden? What is it that Sweden has that we don't? So, I mean, Sweden does have a lot going for it. Obviously, it's a beautiful country, um, but it has this long history of prosperity. Uh, and this prosperity has allowed it to enjoy, you know, some of the world's highest per capita incomes, long lifespans, low infant mortality rates. Uh, it does actually have quite a bit going for it. Um, what's often overlooked is a couple of things about this, however. Uh, one is that uh, for much of its history, Sweden has not been a socialist paradise, but actually uh, close to something like a capitalist paradise. Um, so for much of its history, it's had very low taxes, low regulations, um, uh, free trade, uh, sound monetary policy. Uh, but in recent years, it does have a large government state, and that, that has meant larger taxes. But the interesting thing is who pays for those taxes. Who does pay so, for them? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we often perceive, oh, well, a big a, a, a country with a big government, it must be that the taxes are exclusively paid by the wealthy. But that's not the case in Sweden. In Sweden, most of their taxes actually are paid by middle class taxpayers. So, for example, uh, Sweden has... Um, you know, uh, a comparable income tax rate that's that's similar to, to that of Canada's. Uh, it's 52.3% is their top marginal tax rate. In Canada, it's 53.5. But in Sweden, that top rate kicks in at a very low level, $62,000 in US dollars compared to mm. 177000 uh, for Canada. So uh, it, it's you know, average people are starting to hit that top rate. And same thing goes, an, another big source of their revenue is their value added tax. It's And it's it's high, it's about 25%. Now that's something that everybody pays, you know, when they go to the grocery store. Uh, and it's significantly higher than, than Canada's as well. So other than tax, where does Sweden's prosperity come from? So while they, they do have this large size government, the interesting thing and what people don't often talk about is the other dimensions of what we call economic freedom. So in terms of regulation, in terms of freedom to trade uh, internationally, in terms of their monetary policy, so their central bank uh, and inflation, in terms of their legal systems and property rights, they, they score very, very well on all those components or they're, they're very, very free if you, if you want to think in terms of economic freedom, uh, meaning it's easier to start a business there, to, to run a business, to operate a business than on almost any other place on, in, in, the, in the world. So uh, it seems like it's very easy to get ahead in Sweden, but once you do, they'll take a large chunk of it. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, I think that's just sort, sort of part of the nuanced story here is that, um, you know, if you want a larger government, you, you need to be prepared to pay for it. You, you can't uh, you, you can't have something for nothing. Um, and if you want a successful economy, uh, there's certain um, concessions you're going to have to make in terms of the amount of economic freedom that you're going to permit your citizens to have. Uh, many would say, you know, our government here in Canada has grown 30 uh, percent un- under the current government and not sure that the service is any is any better. Um, is their system, is their big government, what is it doing for them? How is it making life easier for Swedes? Well, one of the uh, other aspects that's sort of interesting about their welfare state is while uh, it's a fairly expensive welfare state uh, by international standards, uh, it's relatively efficiently run, and part of the reason for that is that they allow the private sector to have a relatively large role in terms of uh, operating it. So, for example, they have uh, you know vouchers that are universal vouchers that allow uh, students to take the money with it, their taxpayer money with them and take it to uh, private schools if they want, uh, and a, a substantial portion of their students actually do that. So uh, it seems in some way uh, Canadians can look uh, overseas and say, wow, that's an incredible system. But in other ways, they wouldn't put up with this. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you if you go by a recent poll, 31 um, percent uh, of uh, Canadians say that uh, they're they're willing to put up with the higher taxes to actually pay for a higher welfare state, whereas four in 10 Canadians want more government. So, you know, it's uh, the, the numbers drop quite significantly when you when the bill comes due. Uh, so what is life like for the average person in Sweden? Is there less poverty there? Is there more chance for success or just more chance to be comfortable? So some of this has to you have to look at a wider uh, historical perspective. So for really uh, the better part of a century, Sweden has been one of the most prosperous uh, countries in the world. Uh, now things did start to go off the rails, uh, so to speak, in the uh, early '90s. Um, that was a time when uh, really government uh, spending and debt and deficits got a, a bit out of hand. Uh, they had extremely high inflation. It ultimately led to a, a significant financial crisis, uh, and they had to change things. Um, so they did actually, even though they're, they're famous for having a very large uh, government, they actually managed to reduce the size of the government. Um, maybe even more importantly, they managed to uh, get their fiscal house in order. So they spent less than they brought in in terms of revenue, um, and that allowed them to pay down debt um, and uh, move on from the financial crisis. So if you're talking about the early 90s, things were not looking so good for the, for the average uh, Swede, but things have, have turned around quite a bit now. What can Canada learn from Sweden? Well, I think part of it is, you know, economists have this saying that there, there's no uh, solutions, only trade-offs. You know, you, mm. you can't get something for nothing. You have to think in terms of what works and what doesn't. And now there's loads of evidence that economic freedom, uh, that is, Generally, uh, a modest government with limited regulations, relatively modest uh, taxes, uh, makes, making it easier to start a business and run a business and, and exchange. Those types of things really are beneficial. Um, and we, we, we can't hope, ever hope to have uh, you know, a very generous welfare state if we don't also permit quite a bit of room for private initiative. Uh, there you go. Uh, programs are tough without prosperity. Matthew Mitchell with a senior fellow, Center for Economic Freedom, Fraser Institute, talking about life in Sweden. Matthew, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. The headline in the Globe and Mail is Bank of Canada stuck wondering why interest rate hikes have not 
been enough to tame inflation. A uh, record amount of interest rates in a short period of time rises to uh, the interest rates, and we're all feeling the pinch of that, affordability issues, all of that. Uh, yet, uh, the new interest rate out, uh, uh, sorry, uh, inflation rate, you might remember dropped last uh, month to 2.8%, which is sort of in that sweet spot. Many were thinking, why would the government, or sorry, Bank of Canada, raise uh, interest rates when it's sort of in that sweet spot of 2 to 3%? But uh, this month's numbers are out, and it's back up to 3.3%, up about a half a point. So uh, many are unsure whether this is working or not. Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. So why isn't this having the effect the Bank of Canada would be hoping for? Well, this is the latest uh, narrative uh, or spin uh, by people that don't like interest rate increases, which I understand. They cost more money and they take money out of your pocket. But let me confront it head on. And by the way, I don't have any love for this government. I've been extremely critical of the Liberal government. And I realize that Governor of the Bank of Canada is a nonpartisan, but he was appointed by the Prime Minister of Canada. And um, I am going to defend what he's doing now. It is just specious bunk and nonsense to (laughs) say that the interest rate increases are not working. I don't know how anybody can say that when a year ago, this is fact, people. These are this is evidence based discussion. Over a year ago, inflation was over 8%. Staggering. Should never have got there. Yes, the Bank of Canada contributed mightily by driving interest rates far, far, far too low for too long. Uh, down to a quarter of 1%, lower than during the Great Depression, lower than during World War II, and nobody can suggest that the pandemic for two years was worse than World War II or the 10-year Great Depression where one-third of all Canadians were out of work with no income support, no public health care, no social welfare. Okay, so we drove it down too low. Then we dumped two-thirds of a trillion dollars of stimulus. That's the finance department ministry and the prime minister into the economy. Massive amounts of stimulus. Now the Bank of Canada belatedly realized this mistake and it drove up interest rates. It is bringing inflation down. But what we're learning is a couple of things. First off, once you let that terrible, horrible genie out of the bottle called inflation, it is really, really hard to get it back. And for those who say, oh, that's just some professor talking, you know. I lived through the 70s. I was a mortgage manager of the fourth largest branch of the Bank of Montreal in all Canada, Ottawa, Maine, office. And I was there when inflation, this was 77, 78, 79, 80, 81. I was there when inflation went from four to five to six to seven to eight, peaking at 14% because the government of the day kept kicking the problem down the road and said, no, 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 it's going to go away. It's, you know, don't worry about it. We don't have to address it. And they kept kicking the problem and procrastinating, and it got worse and worse and worse. And then finally, the governor, Bowie and Volcker in the state said, enough is enough. And they drove interest rates all the way to 20, creating the worst recession since the Great Depression. And who says that increased interest rates don't work in killing inflation, simply with respect, I'm sorry for sounding so rude, don't know what they're talking about. So now to your question, the 5% I'm suggesting to you, clearly, is not enough to get to 2% inflation. I am not suggesting we have to go to 8 or 10% interest rates or 12 or 14. Of course not. But it is working. It did bring it down to the threes from the eights. 
But I think that they're probably, unfortunately, and I don't celebrate this, I know that interest rate increases hurt lots and lots of people. That is the point of interest rates. It takes money out of people's pockets so they have less money to spend on groceries and on to be blunt. I'm saying things that they can't say at the Bank of Canada. Less money for renovations and trips and holidays and restaurants, okay? And it is working. And the good news, here is the good news, everybody. We're not going to have to go to 20%. We're not going to have to go to 10%. We might have to go to 5.5%. I think if we go to five and a quarter, five and a half percent central bank rate, we'll probably be able to put that genie back into the bottle at 2%. The central bank is forecasting that. So are some of the big banks and other economists that by next year, we'll be down to 2%. If we are, then they can start to bring rates back down. Uh, two percent, a and and I'm just asking the professor here as a student. Uh, is two percent the norm we have to get? I mean, I know that's been the standard for years. Is that still the standard? Uh, many said when it went to two point eight last month, we're still in the wheelhouse, so that's close enough. Um, yeah. Is there much difference between two and a half to three or three and a half? The Okay, I'm not a central banker. Let, let's be very clear. But I've read, my God, the number of studies I've read, if you printed them all, it would destroy entire forests to print all the papers that have been written over the last 100 years on this topic. And there is a consensus in the literature. And based on real world, I'm talking Bank of England, United States, Federal Reserve, Canada, the Western, the high income Western countries, that 2% is the sweet spot. When you get below 2%, you start to risk deflation, which is almost as bad as hyperinflation. That's what they had in the depression where rates kept, prices kept falling. And everybody said, well, I'm not going to buy today because if I wait two months, the price will go down even more. So why buy anything? Well, that's deflation. And that's really bad. And hyperinflation, we're seeing it right now in Turkey. We're seeing it in Argentina, which is a fiscal disaster on steroids. Because what? They kicked the problem down the road. They said, no, 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 we're not going to raise interest rates enough to deal with inflation. Same with Turkey. And they have a first rate mess on on their hands. So the 2% trial and error over many, many years in many, many countries has been determined to be the sweet spot. And the problem is when you get up to 2 and 8, 2.83, 3.2, is that inflationary expectations start to set into, into the heads of all of us. And that's, this is why it's a game of psychology, but it's a very serious game. This is really serious, people. And the game is they've got to convince us that they will not tolerate 3% inflation or 3.5 or 4. That's why the interest rates are so effective. They're draconian. They're unbelievably painful. I understand that. I worked in a bank. I had customers coming into me saying, I'm sorry, I can't pay my mortgage. What do I do? This is real. But it th- this is the, the tragedy that we allowed it out of the bottle. After we shut down the supply chains, which blew it up, then what we did is we poured gasoline on the fire. And that is the unbelievably low interest rates. They should never have gone down to a quarter of a point, half a point, And we should never have put two thirds of a trillion into the economy. We should have targeted this the 15.5% unemployed and only them. But we gave a lot of money, as everybody knows, to very profitable corporations and to people who weren't out of work. So we put all that stimulus into the system and now we're paying the price. It's a tragedy. It's a terrible price. It hurts lots of people, but this is what we have to get pay to get back to where we ought to have been all along. 
We're out of time, uh, Ian. So just to assume uh, next September or this coming September, there will be another increase. I think there will be one more rate increase of a quarter of a point, unfortunately. Dr. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Always fun, Ian. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well. So uh, earlier today had Andrea Horvath on the show, mayor of the city of Hamilton, and I do not envy uh, any of the people on council and, and the job that they have ahead of them. Uh, trying to work out a solution for the homeless situation in Canada, or sorry, in Hamilton, uh, Ontario, and Canada. And, um, you know, I guess my question to you is, and, you know, there's only so much you can say. There's only so much they can do. I'm wondering if, and I'll ask this to you, I'm wondering if you think that this has taught them, and by them, I don't just mean Andrea, although she was in provincial politics. You mean for politicians. Politicians in general, if it has taught them, Anything about being proactive instead of sitting on their hands and doing nothing. And we've often accused Hamilton City Council of taking one step forward and then two or three steps back and getting nothing done. Do you think now it has this attitude change and look, look, because you have done that, this is where we are. This is a self-inflicted problem. See, I. I don't know the answer to that, Scott, but something else, uh, and so, you know, it's a fair question. I've had a different question, and I don't mean to take you off course of what you just said, but through this whole thing, there's been a number of times when, uh, during the discussion, <coughs> excuse me, city councillors have said, uh, remember when, uh, when Matt Francis brought forward the idea that, well, maybe we can, you know, if you want to volunteer your yard or your yeah. house, fine. And it was, it wasn't a solution, but it was fine if you want to be a participant. And a number of counselors said, look, this is not something for people to try and do. And mm. I thought that was the most wrongheaded answer. It is abundantly clear to me that most of the social problems that we're facing now are not the result of people. It's the result of government. Yeah. It's government or, or, that has been lack- or lack thereof. Or la- well, or too much of, or yeah. too, putting in, I mean, how many more buildings, how many more homes and houses and everything would we have in this city and elsewhere if we had way fewer restrictions and much less red tape so that people could get stuff yeah. done? I have heard, Scott, from so many developers over the years that it is impossible to get things done in Hamilton. Now, the mayor, she may have said this with you, I didn't hear, I apologize, but she told me a week or so ago, you know, the city is doing what it can to try and ease that and make it easier for houses and housing units to be moving through the system. There's something like 37,000 of them that are in some way along the route, (coughs) but it shouldn't have been this way. We've, we've had governments and not just municipal, we've had governments of all political stripes at all different levels who have decided we need to have so much oversight and so much control and so much dominance of the market and not just in housing and a lot of things that stuff grinds to a halt. Sometimes governments yeah. don't solve, what was Ronald Reagan's? Great line. I can't even remember it now, but it, you know, the solution is less guy. I can't remember what he said, but government gets in the way. It can be helpful, but yeah. too often it gets in the way and it's attempts to control things ruins things. 
And, you know, I think the issue of the green belt has really brought this to the forefront because there's been a lot of people hiding behind uh, arguments and such. And I think what the green belt debate has really put forward is that we've got 20 to 40 years worth of stock uh, land we can use before we even really need to get into the green belt, which, of course, raises the burning question, where the hell is the housing then and why hasn't it been built by now, which draws and points the attention Back to the people who've been dilly-dallying and not getting this done. You know, the Green Belt is one of these discussions that uh, people lose their minds, and, and I get it. People yeah. are passionate about this thing, and I think you and I talked the other day. For the next 15 or 20 years, the answer yep. that the Auditor General gave that we don't need to move on to the Green Belt, I, I don't have any reason to disagree or, or, or doubt what she says about that, but we are here today... And you've alluded to this. We are here today because we didn't look far down the road. So yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll build homes, but if we continue to bring in a million new Canadians a year, which is the rate we're at right now, and we can't build remotely that many homes in a year, we can't, we can't, or or enough to to house all these people. We're already behind. It's not an anti-immigration thing. It's just a reality. Uh, At some point. 20 years from now, we're going to be right back here going, wait a second, why are we so far behind in housing stock? Why did we not think ahead? But we're not going to do that because the the green belt is sacrosanct and sacred and politicians will not touch it. And maybe they're right, but I just, I, I just think that down the road, it's going to be a different discussion. This discussion is going on for the next 10 to 20 years. Least, it ain't, it is not going away. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. This one from Barb in Belleville. Hi, Scott. The environmental minister going to China on behalf of Canada to solve pollution problems is ridiculous. I would have thought that the NATO alliance would handle something like this, not Canada. But Justin is desperate for an international win so he can get a coveted international appointment, and he will then haunt us forever. Barb. Keep right except to pass. 